Oh, ladies, so glad you're here. So last week we finished up Ruth. So 65 more books to go. <laughs> um, tonight we're going to start Esther. And I told someone last week after class, the only reason I'm okay with finishing Ruth is that we get to start Esther. And Esther is such an amazing book. Um, a couple things before we get started. You'll notice, you'll get copies as you come in for Esther as well, just like we have been doing. We did start the page numbers over, um, so you're starting again at one. That way, if you ever want to separate your binders, you can do that. Um, that's my system at home. I have a different binder for each of the books. Because what you're going to find is the more books you do, the more you'll think about books you've already done, and you'll go back to them, and you'll add things, and you'll get new insight into things. So I just keep binders, and as I'm working through a book, if something else pops in my head, I can just write it on a post note or an index card, stick it in that binder, and then get back to it whenever I get back to that book. So, so that's why your page numbers are over. Um, are you looking for the men's Bible study? Don't have those. So, <laughs> so page numbers are starting over. You'll see in your pages, we're going to do it the same way. You'll have the notes in black. The Bible verses themselves will be in bold. You'll have those red connectors and the blue applications. And ladies, this is not something you have to do. It's just to keep you engaged in the text throughout the week, but you don't need to do them to understand what we will be doing in here the following week. Remember, the main thing I want you doing as we're in this class is to immerse yourself in the book itself. So just read it over and over and over. The more you do that, you all, even your reading will start to change things will start popping out to you that never popped out to you before. So just continue to read it. Okay. So Esther is most likely a story we are all pretty familiar with. We could probably all give a pretty great synopsis of this story. So instead of doing an overview of it, I'm just going to give you a couple things for you to be thinking about and for you to continue to think on as we go throughout the book. Um, so a couple interesting things about this book. Again, we know it's one of only two books named after women in the Bible. Esther is one of only four books that is not quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. So we have Esther, Song of Solomon, Obadiah, and Nahum. So all four not mentioned in the New Testament. And then Esther is the only book, the only book in the entire Bible where you will never see the name of God. You'll never see the Lord in fact, because of that, you all, there's been a couple of times throughout church history, people have tried to remove the book of Esther, saying it should not be in here because God is never mentioned. But what I want you to think about as we go through this 
is that God is all over this book, you all, everywhere in this book. But he's a little more behind the scenes. So, there's several themes that I want you to take note of as we go throughout the book. Um, First off is the idea of divine providence. And you all, this goes right along with what I was just saying. Though the name of God is not mentioned in the book, we see his fingerprints everywhere. In this book, you all, we don't see any big miracles. There's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no water from a rock. No talking donkeys. (laughs) This book is not... God bringing about his plan through miracles. It's about him bringing about his plan through um, not the supernatural, but the natural. And when you think this way throughout this book, you are going to see God everywhere, everywhere. The second theme we're going to see here is human responsibility. Um, Though God's ultimate plan was brought about which is the salvation of the Jewish people in this story, it was done through the courageous acts of two individuals. So human responsibility. What do we do with what we have? What do we do with what God tells us to do? The third theme goes right along with that is the impact of the individual believer. You all, we saw this in Ruth as well. One person can truly change history. Ruth did, and we are going to see that Esther will as well. And then the fourth theme, we are going to see the absurdity of evil. In this book, two of who would be the most powerful men in the world at this time come across looking almost laughable. And we're going to get into this a little more later on tonight. But four main themes that will carry throughout this entire book. So, just like always, um, I know there's at least one new person um, for Esther. So, how we do this, we always read the chapter that we're going to tackle that night, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. So, this is... Esther chapter 1, follow along in your notebook or in your Bible if you'd like. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, 
to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of the palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abacatha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vasti? because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the prince, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and Lord, we are so thankful for this evening. Thank you for this chance to get together once again to study your word. Lord, we want to be women of the word. 
We want to know your word, Father God, so we ask for eyes to see. Lord, we want to understand what you have for us, so we ask for ears to hear. Father, we know that your word was applicable a thousand years ago, Lord, and it is applicable to us today. So I ask that you both corporately and individually, Father God, show us what you have for each of us this evening through this precious book and this first chapter of Esther. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so verses 1 through 4, we really get the entire setup of the story. It starts now in the days of Ahasuerus. Now, if you remember how Ruth started, Ruth started in the days when the judges ruled, and we spent about an hour there. Well, we're going to spend the majority of this evening on these first few verses, and then we'll get a little quicker as we go, go through the night. So, in the days of Ahasuerus, when was this? It is very important when we study books, you all, we need both biblical setting and historical context. So this chart on your page there should look very familiar to you. We had the same one in Esther. And you all, this is the beginning for me of every book that I do. I always go to this chart to see where does it fit within the whole context of the Bible. Okay? It's divided into the genres. We're not going to go through the ones that we did last time for Ruth. So if you want an overall survey of those books, you can listen to week one of Ruth. But we know those first five books are called the Book of the Law. In Hebrew, it's the Torah. In Greek, it would be called the Pentateuch, all written by Moses. And I'm just going to say all five of these so worth a verse-by-verse study. If you get the beginning right, it's much easier to get the rest of it right. Have you heard that scenario of if you miss the first button, everything else goes wonkers? Well... I would say these first five books, you all, are crucial to your understanding of the rest of the word, okay? So after the books of the law, we have the 12 historical books, and we touched on a few of those last time. We looked at Joshua and then Judges, which was actually the time frame of the story of Ruth. And then, of course, we spent the last four weeks in the book of Ruth itself, So the main thing I need you to think about in terms of Ruth tonight is to remember we're not exactly sure where that book took place within the time of the judges. Remember, the judges was that 350-year period, okay, where people were doing whatever was right in their own eyes because they had no king, okay? And then right in the middle, somewhere of this 350 years, we have the book of Ruth, span 12 years, the beautiful story, redemption of Naomi and Ruth, and the foreshadowing of our own redemption. But this book, even though it's right there after Judges, it didn't end the time of the Judges. Because when our next historical books pick up, which are 1st and 2nd Samuel, Samuel is a judge of Israel, okay? In fact, Samuel's two sons become the last judges, 
They're the last judges of Israel. And um, in 1 Samuel, it says, let me find this quote, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the people, again, this was a rough time. The people are coming to Samuel asking for a king. They want a king. And Samuel warns them, you really don't want to king. Okay, you don't really know what you're asking for, but they keep asking. So for your first connection, um, 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 9, you're going to read, if you want, sometime this week. This will show you the end of the time of the judges and the first glimpse into the monarchy. You'll see Samuel's warning about what life under a king is going to be like. And then also you'll read what the people's response was. Because we know they end up with a king. So they get what they ask for. Okay? So... The rest of First and Second Samuel, we get the beginning of the monarchy with Saul and then David, who is the second king. Then the next two books are First and Second Kings. And this actually begins with the death of David. And then we have um, the reign of Solomon, the construction of the first temple. We have the stories of Elijah and Elisha. And here we have the division of the kingdom, which we'll get into in a few minutes. And then the wickedness, pretty much, of all the kings that follow. And I've got a chart there for you on the side. And you can see the split kingdom. The northern kingdom, which was comprised of ten tribes, is called Israel. And you can see all their kings until their exile to Assyria. And then next to that, all the kings of Judah, starting out with Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, and all of their kings until their captivity. And what makes this chart interesting? The kings in blue were good. So you can see pretty quickly, this was another rough point in Israel's history. And I think one of the things we need to see, even though there are some beautiful stories with some of these kings, the majority of it is that they just seem to keep missing the point. They need to quit following men and follow the true king. Okay? But they kept getting into trouble. So after that, we have First and Second Chronicles. And in, this, in these two books, you'll get some highlights out of David's reign, okay? It'll go back to David's reign to tell you some stories that weren't in First and Second Samuel. But the majority of this book, you all, is actually just records, national, religious, and family records. So it makes it a little tough to read, but it actually becomes important to our story, these chronicles and how they were written, Okay? After the Chronicles, you get Ezra. Ezra begins with the return from Babylonian captivity. And Ezra is going to attempt to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. So this is the book of Ezra. Nehemiah, which is the next book, is sort of a companion book to Ezra. This is also people are returning back to Jerusalem from captivity 
and now Nehemiah is going to build a wall around the city because they're trying to build the temple, but they keep getting attacked. So now they have to build a wall first, so then they can have a temple. So, so then our last book, last historic book, is Esther. So it's the 17th book in the liter- literary chronology of the Bible, but we get history that happens after Esther. Okay? And here's what you need to know. Ruth took place within the time of the judges, somewhere in there. We don't know where. The book of Esther takes place within the book of Ezra. And for this one, we know exactly where. It's right between chapter 6 and 7. So if you're reading Ezra, stop at chapter 6, read Esther, and then go on. Okay? And I'll I'll show you a little piece of that um, when we get to it later. So, some historical context here, you all. Over 500 years has passed since we were together last week. Okay? Last week, Ruth had just married Boaz. They have their son, Obed, who we know is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. Okay? So a lot has happened between that time and what is going on now. So we're going to dig in a little bit here because you've got to get this in order to really understand the magnitude of what happens in this book. So a couple of things, and let me just, I want to encourage you with something here. And I put on there, um, I tried a new color. It's kind of turquoisey, just a Bible tip. You all, this isn't the Bible. This is just my opinion. So take it or leave it. But I'm going to tell you the three things that have really helped me understand the Bible, okay? And the first is what I mentioned to you all a few weeks ago, just really beginning to read the Word as it was meant to be read, not jumping around all the time, not going to my quiet time and opening up my Bible and, okay, where am I going, God? Right here. I mean, reading books as books, beginning to end reading letters, beginning to end, reading poetry like you're supposed to read poetry. You read that differently from narrative. You read history different from prophecy. You need to know these genres, what they are about, and read them the way they were written, okay? Um, Secondly, for me, it's understanding a little more history, okay? And you all, we know, we saw this in Ruth, the problems with Israel started because they weren't teaching their kids their own history. They stopped passing on the history, and then everything became lost. And for me, I'll just say, I felt very lost in here, kind of bouncing around, not really... If you've ever found yourself saying the words, I don't get it, it doesn't make sense, I don't understand it, um, these are what I came to for me that really helped me understand it. So reading it the way it was meant to be read, 
learning history, and then you can't sugarcoat this one, you all. It just takes time. You just have to put time in. Um, and it can, uh, this is a big book, you all, with so many magnificent things. And I cannot make many guarantees in life, but I can guarantee you this. It is worth every minute you put into it. And very quickly, because again, I hope this encourages you. I have not been doing this very long. 2015, you all, is when I started serious study of the Bible. I was not in a great place. Um, Kind of felt like I had hit a wall in many areas. And God, as clear as day, right out of Ephesians, wake up. I think it says, wake up, you sleeper. (laughs) And you all, I realized I had been sleepwalking for many, many years. And I had two girls on the verge of being adults, and I had not taught them the word. And I thought I had taught them all I thought I taught them well. They're well-mannered. They're well-behaved. They make good grades. They pick great friends, good work ethics, and they did not know the word. Everything they were getting was from someone else. So I first apologized to my girls for falling asleep on the job. And then I just asked them if they wanted to do a Bible study. So they got... I said, pick a few friends, we'll do a group study together. So I started with a verse by verse. I picked James because I ignorantly thought, I know that book. That will be an easy one. And then in my verse by verse, I realized I know so little of how this works. So we studied that one out together. And now you all, when I finish a book, I go to another one. And I finish a book, and I go to another, and I've done 11. And I am a different person than I was in 2015. And no other changes other than study of the Word of God. And you all, it will change you if you allow it. And that change will be so good. Might be a little painful along the way. Um, might be a lot painful along the way, actually. Um, but so worth it. So I've had a couple people make some comments to me just over the past four weeks that has almost made me think that some of you feel like you might not be able to do this. You can. Y'all, this isn't rocket science. It is just getting in here and putting some time in. So, okay. So here we have, and as I go through this part, you all, you might look at your timeline that I have for you. Um, What page is on your, it's at the bottom of page four. And I've got some some of this written for you, but it might be easier for you to follow along here. So, King David ascends the throne in about 1,000 B.C. And we now, at the beginning of Esther, we're in 486. So again, over 500 years have passed. 
you'll see on your chart you have the beginning of the monarchy. We have King Saul. We know about his reign. King David. And then after David, we have Solomon. All of them reigning through what is the United Kingdom. There was one kingdom of Israel. Okay? Now, in David's reign, obviously he had the fall with Bathsheba. And because of that, he is told... Not only will his son with Bathsheba die, but his kingdom will be split. And God says, because I love you, it's not going to happen to you. It won't happen to your son. But after your son's reign, the kingdom will be divided. And that is exactly what happens. Solomon comes to power um, and he brings the most extravagant kingdom that has probably ever been on earth, you all, but he does so at a very high cost. He sells some of the land. Remember what we learned about the land? You don't sell God's land. He sells some of it. Um, some of the people of Israel had to go north. They were became forced laborers to pay for things. And then, of course, we know Solomon, the wisest man in the world fell because of the influence of foreign wives, which God had warned about. So next connection there, you can read in 1 Kings 11, you'll see the fall of Solomon. And just knowing you all that the wisest man fell is quite a cautionary tale for all of us. You all, we cannot just have wisdom, we have to be obedient. We cannot just have knowledge, we have to be obedient. It doesn't matter how much of this we know if we're not doing what it says. And Solomon did not, and he fell. So after Solomon, his son Rehoboam comes to power. And again, you can flip back and see your chart of the kings there, the 10 northern tribes refuse to submit to Rehoboam, so they start their own kingdom of Israel, okay? And this is what becomes the divided kingdom. Israel is the kingdom to the north, and their capital, they make their capital the city of Samaria. The southern kingdom is called Judah, and they keep their capital in Jerusalem. So this is your divided kingdom. So after Solomon, or after Solomon, it divides. The northern kingdom is the first kingdom that goes into just extreme idolatry. You all, they have horrible practices, and God warns them what is going to happen If they don't stop, they do not stop. So he allows the Assyrians to come in and conquer them. God twice, you all, both kingdoms. This wasn't accidental. God used the country's enemies against them, okay? Caused their fall through their enemies. So the Assyrians take over um, the northern 
country of Israel. Now, they have a very interesting way that they take over a country, you all, um, which is very different from the Babylonians that we're going to see. When the Assyrians would come in, they would take some of the people out, but they would leave some there, okay? The people they would take out, they would mix all throughout their empire, and then they would send Assyrians in to the conquered land because what this did was eventually it caused a mixing. You had intermarriage. You had children being born. And what this did was it kind of held any um, insurrection at bay because the people weren't together anymore, okay? And with this mixing, you all, this is where we get the Samaritans. This is why the Samaritans were looked down on. They were a mixed race of the Assyrians and the Jews, okay? Um, Unfortunately, prejudice has always been a part of human history. There are always people groups looking down on other people groups. And this is what happened to the Samaritans. No matter if it was their choice or forced upon them, okay? And what I think is so beautiful there is at least twice, Jesus uses the Samaritans in beautiful stories. The good Samaritan, and then of course the woman at the well who was a Samaritan herself. Um, But that's where that comes from. So the Assyrians had already been taken hundreds of years before. The southern kingdom was still going, okay? But then, of course, they fell to Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in and conquers the southern kingdom. Now, unlike the Assyrians, in the Babylonian captivity, they take, they take the people and they move them to one spot, okay? So they keep their tribal identities while they're in captivity, okay? And this is important to know because when they are released later, they left as a group, they come back as a group. The ones that went into Assyrian captivity, they never had a release date, okay? They were released at several times throughout history when they were allowed to go back, but it wasn't this one point of, okay, everybody's allowed to return. Okay, does that make sense? And that, because of that, people have an idea that these 10 northern tribes sort of got lost in history. And you might hear that phrase sometimes, the 10 lost tribes, but that is really a misnomer because even when... Cyrus allowed the people to go back after the Babylonian captivity. Um, Those people could have gone back at that time as well. And many of them, okay? So we have people from all 12 tribes, okay, in Israel at all times throughout history. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. So the southern kingdom falls to Nebuchadnezzar in 586. Um, People are taken into captivity, again, in one place. And for connection here, you all, you can read, there's several um, points, Leviticus, Jeremiah, and 2 Chronicles, where you can read 
why the captivity was 70 years, okay? Very specific reason why God said you will be captive for 70 years. And hopefully, when you see you're going to be reading in Leviticus, what are you going to be reading there? A law, okay? They broke a law, and because they broke it, a very specific law, they've got to pay for 70 years, okay? So those verses there will kind of take you through the course of why it was set for 70 years. So in 550, at this point, Babylon is the empire in the world, but in 550, it is conquered by the Persians, okay? A man named Cyrus um, causes the fall of Babylon, not the destruction of Babylon, and this is very important when you study Revelation, okay? Because Babylon was never destroyed. It was taken over, but the city was never destroyed, okay? He took it over quite easily, okay, by letting some water down the moats. They were having a big party in Babylon. The Persians come in, take over the city. Some people don't even know for three days that they have been taken, okay? So that was a party, absolutely. So when this happens, Cyrus at this point, allows the people to return back to Jerusalem, okay? Um, But not many of them actually went. And this is very important to our story. They were allowed to go back, but it's estimated that only about 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem at that time. The majority stayed where they were. They had been there for years. They had lives. They had roots, relationships, and they stayed. And you all, Mordecai and Esther would be examples of Jews who stayed. That's why they're there. They could have gone back, but they didn't. So they're still here. So... The events in Esther occurred during the time span between the first return of the Jews under Cyrus after the 70-year period and the second return that was led by Ezra, okay? So if you very quickly, because I just want you to see this, turn in your Bibles to Ezra Ezra might be one. You have to look up to see where it is. Um, Ezra, um, Ezra chapter 6. Because if we read all through Ezra chapter 6, you keep seeing... Darius the king, Darius the king, Darius the king, okay? Darius was Cyrus's son, okay? So he was the next king of Persia, okay? He was very kind to the Jews. Um, He's all throughout chapter 6, okay? Um, 
when you get to chapter 7, the first line of chapter 7 says this. Now, after these things, okay, after all the things Darius had done, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hikali. So here we have Artaxerxes. So Darius and Artaxerxes. Does anybody know who we're missing? Xerxes. Xerxes, who is King Ahasuerus. Okay? So we have chapter 6 with Darius, and then all of the reign of Xerxes himself, or King Ahasuerus, we find in Esther. And then Ezra picks right back up in chapter 7 with his son, Artaxerxes. Okay? So that's how that's woven into the scripture. So, back to verse 1. In the days of Ahasuerus, and you can see there I've got the Achaemenid dynasty there for you of the Persian Empire, and you can kind of see the reigns of these people with Cyrus. Um, down a little bit you can see Darius and then Xerxes. Xerxes... Um, Ahasuerus is actually a title, kind of like emperor, okay? Um, it's thought that Xerxes is probably his name. So in your Bibles, some of you will have him as Ahasuerus. Some will have him in Esther as Xerxes, but it's the same man, okay? So like his father, he ruled the empire when it was at its largest point. This empire was massive, um, you can see on your chart, he ruled from 486 to 465 B.C., so he had a 21-year reign. He ended up being assassinated by the commander of his royal bodyguard, which is interesting because in the book of Esther, we see there's an attempt on his life, okay? And later, that is how he ends up falling. Um, again, he's thought to be the grandson of King Cyrus, who was the one who conquered the Babylonian Empire. So this is one of the main men in our story, um, King Ahasuerus or Xerxes. So it says he reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. Um, you all, this would be current day, and you've got a map on your, note, your notes next week, so you'll be able to see it for something we go through. But it covered present-day India, um, Pakistan, Ethiopia, Sudan, this empire was huge, which makes some of the things that happen in it quite extraordinary. Um, it says he sat on his royal throne in Susa. Um, Susa is in western Persia, about 20 or 200 miles from Babylon, and this was the capital of the empire. It was the capital when his father reigned and when his grandfather reigned, um, as well as where his son will reign from, okay? So the third year of his reign, this is our first time marker here. And again, unlike Ruth, where we know it happens somewhere within this huge time frame, we have very specific 
time points for this story, okay? We know when Xerxes came to power, so the third year of his reign, when he's having this massive festival, would have been in 483. And then throughout the book, we're going to get some other time markers that continue to lead us through the story. In chapter 2, we're going to hear about his seventh year. Something very important happens the seventh year. Um, in chapter 3, we're going to hear about his twelfth year. So we have very specific time points to go throughout this story. And you all, I would just say... You hear sometimes that in order to be a Christian or in order to be a believer, it's almost like we believe in this mystical thing to make us feel good. You all, the Christian faith is based on history, historical fact that is recorded in many other places than this, okay? I... When I had my aha moment of why I am truly a Christian, it wasn't because of how I grew up, even though that was huge, and I am so thankful for a godly heritage. But it became cemented for me when I saw this is true. This is true, you all. It, it, it's very hard to disprove this. <laughs> um, and things like this, you all just help us know that this is real. This really happened. Um, so at this time, again, some of the Jews had returned to Jerusalem, and they were enjoying a pretty peaceful life at this time. We see that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But others, like Mordecai and Esther, they're still in Persia. And we're going to see they know they're from the tribe of Benjamin, okay? So again, this idea that everybody lost their tribal identity isn't really true. They, they knew their heritage. So 180 days. So this king is having a party for 180 days. And it says the reason was to show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness. Sounds like a place I do not want to be. I cannot even imagine seeing this for 180 days showing off. Now, this may or may not have been continual. It might have been within these 180 days. Some people coming in, some people going out, and but... Pretty much, this festival was 180 days long. And where we see this, because he was most likely showing off because he wanted to garner support to go to war. Okay? So he brings everybody in to show how wealthy he is, how powerful he is, how much influence he is, because he wants their support in attacking Greece, okay? And this is called the Greco-Persian Wars that we're going to hit next week. We'll go into a little bit of detail about these wars, okay? But this is what he was doing. He's showing off to get people to get behind him, okay? 
So his father, Darius, had attempted to conquer Greece and had a very embarrassing defeat. So when Darius came back and he was regrouping to go again, he died. So he was never able to avenge himself. So King Ahasuerus was most likely wanting to conquer Greece in honor of his father. Okay. So a lot of what we get, you all, in some of these glimpses into the Persian Empire and some of the things we'll talk about next week with the Greco-Persian Wars is from a historian named Herodotus. I'll be mentioning him several times throughout, his, throughout Esther, and he's known, you all, as the father of history. So he was a Greek man living in the 5th century, and he was the first historian to collect and record information in a very systematic way and also to verify the validity of what he was collecting, okay? So he's a well-known historian, and usually what he says was what really happened, okay? So a lot of these details we get that aren't in the Word are from a writer like this, okay, like Herodotus. So verse 5, we got through 1 through 4. So when these days were completed... The king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So, after this 180-day campaign, then he has a really special party for seven days. So, talks about this garden. Um, I don't know if I put this in your notes or not, but... Um, I just found this excavations of this area, you all. They believe this garden was over 60,000 square feet. Yes, this was massive. So this king, he definitely had some things to show off, okay? Um, But seven days was this culminating party. There were white cotton curtains, violet hangings, fastened from cords of fine linen, purple and silver rock. In verse 6, in verse 6, we get very specific detail about the palace itself. And the interesting thing in this book is we're never given the author, okay? So Mordecai has been put up as the author, Ezra and Nehemiah, all three. Um, Nobody knows for sure who. But we do know that whoever wrote this book has very um, detailed knowledge of Persian culture, but also Jewish culture. And we also know they have very um, vast knowledge of the palace itself. So it was most likely someone who was an eyewitness to some of these events. Okay. So. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So again, a very interesting detail about the party. All the cups were different. Okay, 
So again, probably someone who was there is recording this. But what's very interesting here, you all, is this edict, okay? Because typically in Persian culture, at an event like this, when the king drank, you drank. When the king did not drink, you were not drinking, okay? But this was very different, and it says he told this to all of his staff, there is no compulsion. Everyone was allowed to do as they desired. Sounds like a recipe for disaster. Free alcohol to everyone for seven days as much as you want. Okay? Not a very good time to make any decisions. And we're going to see the king does something that actually puts himself in a humiliating um, position. And then to save face, he's got to do something else. Okay? But these men have been drinking um, for seven days as much as they want. And we know that Queen Vasti at the same time was having a party for the women somewhere else in the palace. So on the seventh day, the last day of this very special party, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, I imagine so, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. So first, you all, we have the seventh day. Now, last week, I think I gave you the third day to do a little phrase study or word study on your own. Um, this is just as amazing. Well, I don't know. Maybe not. The third day and the seventh day, crazy important days used all throughout the scripture. So like normal here, you're going to look up. I've got the occurrences here for you. The number seven, sevenfold, sevens, seventh, or 70 is used over 500 times. This is an important number. Um, its first mention is in Genesis 2.2. Um, we know that is the seventh day of creation. Um, can you turn that off? Do you know how to turn it off? I don't know. Gosh, you all. <sighs> this might be a redo of the recording. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Okay. Um, so, from beginning to end, the seventh day is crucial in importance all throughout the word. So, next, says the heart of the king was Mary. We talked about that. And then we have these seven eunuchs who were ordered to go get the queen. Okay? Now, eunuchs, you all, I'm sure you know this, castrated men to work in the palace for the king. And when I hear something like this, here's another little Bible tip I want you to get a hold of. When you are dealing with a historic book, I want you to think of the principle of harmony and the principle of history. The principle of harmony 
means that we interpret each and every scripture in here in light of other scripture, okay? Paul tells us we need full counsel of God in Acts. We need every bit of it, you all. Old Testament, New Testament, every book, every letter, we need it all. That's where we get the entire picture of God. This is where we get the entire story of redemption, okay? All of it. The principle of history means this. God has revealed these scriptural truths in the context of specific historical and cultural settings. Just because there is something in this Bible, you all, does not mean it's something God condoned. People have trouble with the Bible because they will say things like, oh, there's polygamy in the Bible. There is um, incest. There's slavery, all sorts of things. You all, unfortunately, it is in here because this book is about people. And people do some pretty horrible things, okay? So what we want to think about when we go through these books is what part of this text is cultural expression, things that change, things that were true then, not true now, okay? And what is central revelation? That means there's things from Esther that were true then, they're true now, okay? So we've got to keep these things in mind because I'm going to tell you, we're going to hit some things in this book that are pretty horrific, and this is one of them. I can't think of many more horrendous practices than to kidnap boys and men and castrate them to work in someone's harem. Awful. You take everything from them. And I had a thought, and I didn't think I could prove it until I was coming to church tonight. Mavis caught me on my way in. I was so excited because I'm like, I think I'm right. Okay. Because here's the thing. We have the name for these seven eunuchs. We've talked about this. Names are important. Why are these men named? I looked up all their names. I can't get an overall kind of meaning for them. I really couldn't. They were kind of all over the place in terms of meaning. So I kept thinking, why are they in here? Why are they in here? Why are they in here? And I just thought, are they in here? Because here are men who everything was taken from them. And yet God records their name forever? That's, I thought, well, that's kind of cool if that was true. And then I'm coming to church tonight. Paxton's driving so I can go through my notes. And all I did was Google, you all, because I knew, I thought there was a verse somewhere about eunuchs having a promise. So ends up in Isaiah. And if you want to, so this is not in your notes. 
Isaiah 56. And to give you a little background information, in Deuteronomy, we have a law where eunuchs are not allowed into the assembly of God. Okay? So keep that in mind when we read this in Isaiah. Isaiah 56. I'm going to read verses 4, 4 through 6. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Yes. So these men, any opportunity for children taken from them, and he says, I'm going to give you an everlasting name. Gosh. Is our God amazing? And... Okay. Okay. So anyway, for your application, I said, why do you suppose their names were recorded? But again, I think I might have found it on the way here. So you can think of something different if you want. Let me know if you come up with something else. So verse 11. So these men were commanded to bring Queen Vasti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princess her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Um, I think it's interesting, um, a contrast we can see with the book of Ruth. If you remember, in Ruth, no physical descriptions were ever given, okay? In Esther, we're going to see physical descriptions called beautiful, both of Vashti and of Esther, okay? And I don't know, I just, Ruth seemed to focus more on inner character. This story has a lot to do with outward beauty and then I just was thinking of the contrast between Boaz and what he's looking for and what this king is looking for um, so she was told to come with her royal crown you know I believe every detail is important so when I get a detail like this it just makes me wonder was that all she was supposed to come in and maybe that's why she refused um, again, can't say that for sure, but it's in here for some reason. So verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned inside of him. So she refused. He obviously, you all, expects absolute obedience from everyone. Anything less is unacceptable, and anything else is punishable by death. So she would have known this, obviously, and yet she still refuses to come, okay? 
some people, some scholars, and again, there's no way to prove this, but some think she might have been pregnant at this time because we're not told who Artaxerxes, who his mother actually is. We don't know if it was Vasti. Time-wise, it could work out, okay, from the time he was born that she could have already been pregnant with him at this time. So, not for sure there. So the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Sethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in his kingdom. So these were his closest officials and advisors. The seven princes would have been his inner circle. And this statement, they saw the king's face, is very important because these courts were very complicated systems. And just because you were in the court, it didn't mean you actually had access to the king. Okay? So these were men who saw the king's face, who got to actually have conversations with him, okay? And we're going to see a very important detail tied into that at the end of our story. So according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vasti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials um, that the queen's behavior would be made known to all women causing them to look at their husbands with contempt because they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vasti to be brought before him and she did not come. Listen to this detail. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Do you think there's a little exaggeration here? (laughs) All the women in this huge empire will hear that day and start doing the same thing to their husbands. So, contempt and wrath in plenty. Contempt on part of the women. They will have contempt for their husbands, which will bring about the wrath of the men. And therefore, kind of a just breakdown of society in general. This is what he is saying is going to happen because Vasti did this. So, next words. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vasti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So if it please the king, we're going to see this statement over and over again because this king seems to be a person who just operates on his whims. If it pleases him, he does it. If it pleases him, he does it. If it pleases him, he does it. So let a royal order go out. Let it be written among the laws so that it may not be repealed. This is very important to understand about um, the Persian Empire. 
when an edict was made, okay, it could not be taken back. Even if the king who made it changed his mind. It was made, it was law, you couldn't do anything about it. That's why they're saying, that, that's why they're saying here, don't just punish her, make a law. Because they knew once he did that, he couldn't change his mind. Okay? So very manipulative. And this king, who at the time, remember you all, seven days of drinking. Okay? Yeah, he was embarrassed, humiliated. Probably like, okay, do it. And that's, that's what ends up happening. So, Vasti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. This actually made me laugh. Because here you all, she is punished by being forbidden to do the thing she refused to do. <laughs> we don't know what she's thinking, but she might be like, yes. Because <laughs> we're getting a glimpse of him here, you all, that isn't all that great. And it's going to get worse. Um, but that was her punishment. She can no longer come before him. And we know she's not killed, which is very interesting, you all. She does not get killed, which again is why some people think she might have been pregnant with his son or pregnant, not knowing it's a son at that time. So for this, um, it's very interesting that this happens on the seventh day. She is removed on the seventh day. We'll be in, ending Esther with some typology, okay, just like we did Ruth. But I want you to keep that in mind, that she's taken out on the seventh day. So, when I see this statement here, and this is the first of many, you all, um, if we looked at Ruth as like the model of the great love story, I think we can look at Esther as pretty much a model of a satire. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with that genre, I've got it for you there in a little box. It's typically a fictional story in which the use of humor, irony, and exaggeration or ridicule are employed to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices. And we are going to see over and over again, you all, some ironic things in this story that could be nothing but God. <laughs> nothing but God doing some of this. So verse 20. When the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, this is still Mamukin talking here, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. So the way in which Mamukin is trying to make this a law to control their wives, I think suggests that there was probably already some problems domestically happening, okay? And it is most certainly not a problem that's going to be fixed by making a law, okay? So for an application, you all, is honor a heart issue, 
a behavior issue, or both? Do you think this proclamation is going to bring about what they're hoping it's going to bring about? Most likely not. But still, 21. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. So it pleased the king. Again, he's easily swayed, so he does exactly what Mamukin says to do. So verse 22. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of the people. So here this law goes out. All the provinces, you all, um, will we'll be taking a look at this system in later weeks, but it's nothing short of extraordinary when you see how big this empire is that they could get information out so quickly to everyone in their own language. Because this empire was made up of a lot of empires that they had conquered. So many different people groups, many different languages, and they could quickly get out information everywhere in everyone's own language. And then they also had a system to make sure that it was enforced. So quite the empire we are dealing with here. So, next week, we'll meet Esther. I know we didn't even get to see her um, this chapter. We'll also meet Mordecai, and we'll go into a little bit of those Greco-Persian wars, as well as get um, the connection of how she is going to become the queen of Persia. Okay.